Rare Mark Voices, and in this podcast, we're talking about a rare lung condition called idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, or IPF for short. And joining us are two people who have truly known IPF and gone along the IPF journey, one as a patient and a survivor. So welcome to Bill Vick. Thank you, Julie. And also with us is Toby Ma, who has studied and treated IPF for decades and is one of the most respected voices in the field. You make me sound very old, but thank you. <laughs> Experienced, I think. So great to be with you both. And Bill, if I could start with you, and I really wanted to start with the time when you were first diagnosed with IPF, because for many people, that's quite a moment. And I think it was the same for you. Well, Julie, actually, the moment started, I think, before the diagnosis. And like most patients, and I'm probably more typical than atypical, I probably had pulmonary fibrosis for at least two years before the actual diagnosis. And there's so many moving parts to get an accurate diagnosis as, as Toby can comment on, but it's, it's, a, uh, it's almost an art, not quite a science in the diagnosis. The way I was diagnosed personally, I was 72 years old. Uh, I was training for my first short course triathlon and I was out there every day and I was running and swimming and biking. And the reason I ended up going to my doctor who and referred me to a pulmonologist was not because I was sick or ill. I, I was dropping my swim times. I, I was a master swimmer. I was swimming 3,000, 4,000 yards a day, and that started to drop. I started doing 2,500 yards and then 2,000 yards. So I went to get a pulmonologist to look at me, not because I felt bad. I didn't. I had a little shortness of breath. I lost some weight, but I was more concerned about my event and winning my event. And uh, the doctor I had uh, ran me through some tests. One was called a high-resolution CT scan, where they take a close look at your lungs. And uh, called my wife and I in, and it was one of those moments in time that will forever be with me. Uh, doctor go to his office. His nurse called and uh, asked me to bring my wife so I wouldn't have to tell her things twice, which was probably a great idea. And so uh, Patty and I go down to the doctor's office talking about uh, dinner that night and maybe a movie on the weekend. And we sit down and the doctor comes in the, the waiting room and says, uh, Mr. Vick, we got your test results. I said, hey, great. What's, what's the deal? He says, well, you have a, a rare lung disease. It's called IPF. I said, oh, what does that mean? He says, well, it means idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. He says, it's a, it's a lung disease that uh, right now there's no cure. And I said, what do you mean? He says, yeah, he says, it's a terminal disease. He says, my best advice for you is to go home and get your affairs in order. Because keep in mind that eight years ago when I was diagnosed, there was no hope on the horizon. There was no drugs. There was no treatments. It was a, what I call a ninja disease. By the time you you're diagnosed with it, you're already on the way to dying. So uh, that evening we drove home from the doctor's office. It was a quiet trip. I don't think we said two words. Got home, uh, had a nice glass of, of red wine and ta started talking about it. And uh, at that point, the reality kind of sunk in that eternal diagnosis is not to be taken lightly and it changes your life in many ways, subtle ways as well as is more overt ways, but it was something that changed my life, believe it or not, in better ways. 
So Toby, how typical is Bill's experience? I mean, you've seen thousands of patients with IPF. Can you give us an idea of what that typical moment is, that diagnosis moment? I think as Bill has very clearly articulated, the challenge with breathing and breathlessness is that many of us will put the feeling of breathlessness down to being unfit or getting older. Uh, and I think it what, what's slightly unusual about Bill's story is that he was he was competing as an athlete at a reasonably high level. And actually, that's the best way to pick up lung disease is recognizing that your personal best times are starting to drift or your distance is drifting. So I suspect Bill recognized it a bit sooner than somebody might have done had their their idea of activity been walking to the shops every day. So I, I think in that sense, it's, it's typical, but there's an atypical component to it. But I, I think it's always a challenge for people to recognize the symptoms because they feel well. Somebody with IPF who's sitting in front of you looks exactly like everyone else. You wouldn't know that they had a life-threatening illness just looking at them. So I think that that's an important challenge for caregivers is that you've got somebody who, who's sitting there looking well. In Bill's case, somebody who's still competing at athletics and therefore is very active and and very fit and and at the same time they're telling you that things aren't quite right and so it's things have got to click for the doctor that actually this is a potential problem that needs investigating because I think until somebody takes it seriously uh, and does the necessary investigations then it's often very easy to overlook the diagnosis in the early stages um, and I think and that sort of the the tale of going to the doctor and and getting that bad news is again a typical one. I, I think even now many people in the general population have never heard of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, um, and so actually they'll go to the doctor often fearing they've got cancer. They'll be told they haven't got cancer, so inside that they, they do a small celebration, and it's only. A little bit later on that it dawns on them as they get more information that actually a diagnosis of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis is in itself very serious and compared to some cancers is is a worse diagnosis to have potentially. And just picking up on that point because as you say many people have never heard of IPF. My dad had IPF and of course you know very similar we've not heard of it. He wanted to manage our expectations that everything was fine so what would you say to people who have a diagnosis with IPF? Like what could they be doing for themselves or what conversations could they be having with their clinician? Um, so I think, I know th- 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 there's a few important things to think about. I think for the newly diagnosed patient, first of all, they need to be cautious about what they read on the internet because I think what's currently out there doesn't reflect how things have changed since the advent of antifibrotic therapy. Um, I think there has been a genuine shift in outcomes for patients with the disease. uh, And although current treatments aren't perfect, they're definitely much better than what we didn't have when Bill was diagnosed eight years ago. So there's already hope in terms of what's available from therapy. But I think things that people can do for themselves are to keep fit. Um, People often worry that getting breathless is somehow bad or dangerous for their lungs. It's not. Quite the opposite. Staying fit and active actually puts people in a better situation both to deal with the symptoms, but also if they were to get something like an infection, they're in a better place to be able to deal with that. Um, The second issue is then around infection. So 
we know that fibrosis arises because the lungs sort of respond abnormally to damage. So essentially fibrosis is scarring and scar tissue. Uh, Things that can potentially damage the lungs can lead on to an excess of scar tissue developing. And infection is certainly one of those things. So I strongly recommend to all my patients that they have the flu vaccine on an annual basis. Uh, And there's also a pneumococcal vaccine, which is to protect against the commonest form of pneumonia. And I recommend that people have that every five years. I also suggest that people take sensible precautions to avoid infection. You can't wrap yourself in cotton wool. You don't want to avoid all people. But I think if friends or family have got a streaming cold, then it's better that they don't come and visit and that they delay visiting until they're better. Um, So I think those are the main things. And obviously, cigarette smoking is bad, but actually very few patients smoke cigarettes. So that's not an issue. Beyond that... It's leading a healthy, balanced lifestyle. Yeah, Toby, I, I, I'd like to add if I can, because I think what you, you nailed the, the important things. As, as a patient in a patient community leader, we, we look at five things, really. First and foremost, listen to your doctor. They're the, they're the ones that are going to guide you in this disease. But you have to also become an educated patient and become active in your own life and your own health. So after looking at the medical solutions provided by your doctor, there's some common sense things that everyone should do. Avoid those things that might be conceived or perceived as a trigger for pulmonary fibrosis. Example, feathers or fungus or certain, certain drugs. Avoid those things. You know, secondly, it's just basic fundamentals. I call it the basic blocking and tackling. You have to live a life that's rich and full I think it starts off by respecting your your body and exercising, whether that be walking or whatever you do, but to continue to do it, to eat right and eat smart. And that sometimes is, is a confused area. There is no silver bullet diet that is a cure for pulmonary fibrosis that I found, but you have to eat right and eat smart. You have to also, I think, keep active. I think a lot of patient survivability in living with this disease has to do what happens between their ears. It's your attitude. And if your attitude is positive and you approach the disease is simply a part of life, not the end of life, your survivorship is much greater and much better and richer and deeper. Very well put, Bill. And Bill, from your uh, experience, I mean, you were diagnosed at 72, if I can share that you're now 81. I am. 81 and, 81 and proud. 81 and proud. Yes. So that's quite, that's quite a difference, and given that you were told you had two years to live. So I'm just wondering what you would share in terms of, you know, you, you've worked and seen through your patient advocacy work, hundreds of other people with IPF. You know, what would you say to people who were given, you know, you've got two years? To put, put it in perspective and give you some, some shape to that, Julie, you know, since I've been diagnosed in the United States, in, and we're obviously a larger population in the UK, but in the United States, uh, I live in a little town called Plano, Texas. Plano, Texas is just north of Dallas. The population is about 360,000 people. In the eight years since I've been diagnosed, 360,000 people have died from pulmonary fibrosis, meaning that in my town, my city, every mother, child, father, son, 
daughter has died from this disease. I lose personally every week four to five people I know because I'm an activist. I have a large support group. Uh, I meet with patients on a regular basis. Uh, I've, I've seen firsthand the, the horror it can bring to a family. I've also seen firsthand the joy of those that are living with this disease, uh, particularly those that are qualified for a lung transplant, which is the, the panacea, if you will. But when you look at lung transplants and recognize in the United States that just fewer than 2,000 were done out of a patient population of combining COPD and IPF of about uh, 42 million people, it's a drop in the bucket. So the solution to me is finding that next big cure, whatever it may be, whether it's genomics or stem cells or drugs, whatever it is, we as a patient community are looking for that taking place and happening, and it, it can't happen too soon. So just picking up on that, Toby, what are you seeing? Because you're a, a scientist and a clinician, what are you seeing coming towards patients in the next few years that most excites you? Well, I, I think what's been exciting in IPF, I, I started my research, I started working in fibrosis back in 2002. I started PhD in 2006. At the time, there weren't that many people interested in IPF. It was a niche area. Um, the meetings that we attended, if we were lucky, we would have 50 or 60 researchers from around the world. Uh, now, everybody's excited, dare I use the term, about fibrosis research. The amount of resources being pumped into it has increased our specific fibrosis meeting, we've had to cap numbers at 350 because we just can't cope with the size of audiences who want to attend. So I, I think we've seen a huge expansion in the scientific interest in understanding fibrosis. That has a knock-on effect that we're now seeing multiple companies with new drugs in this area. I think we're still learning as we go along. And if you look at the oncologists, they've transformed cancer outcomes but really that's been based on research that started in the 1940s and 1950s. So they've been working at this for 70 years. We've maybe been doing the same or at a similar level of intensity for the last 10 to 15 years. So I, I think we're learning as we go along. We're learning how to do trials with the likes of Bill Support Group and other patient networks. Many more people are becoming involved both in observational research to understand the disease, but also in clinical trials so that we can develop sort of next generation of treatments. Uh, and at the moment in my center alone, we're running 12 different clinical trials looking at different medications to try and treat fibrosis. So even if there's only a 20 to 30% success rate, I would hope that those 12 trials might give us one or two new treatments, maybe even two or three new treatments five to 10 years from now. So I think I think things are transforming. And as I've already alluded to, although neither of the two antifibrotic drugs we have are perfect, they have led to a step change in the way the disease is managed. And I think at the same time, they've also led to a, a much greater awareness of the disease. Uh, again, I imagine when Bill was diagnosed eight years ago, there probably wasn't a lot of information for him to access there certainly weren't any self-sustaining patient support groups, and all of that has changed. Uh, so I, I think it's got 
a lot better. I think we're still on a journey. There's still some way to go, but there are reasons to be optimistic. And Bill, from your perspective, how have you seen the field change? Oh, dramatically, Julie, dramatically. Keep keep in mind, eight years ago, that there's a big four-letter word that should be flashing in the sky about this disease, and it's called hope. There was no hope. When you got it, you were going to die. It's just a matter of how soon and when. Since that time, the advent of, uh, of Roche coming on board with their profenadone or watching Burns or Ingelheim with an attendant tab, uh, has changed lives dramatically. And as Toby said, they're not a miracle cure. They slow the disease down. But if I can buy an extra month or two or a year and watch my, my grand, which I just recently did, I watched my grandson get married. Well, eight years ago, that was out of my, I didn't even think about that because that wasn't going to be possible. So I think it can change lives in a very positive way. But what's exciting to me is what's happening on the horizon. You know, new studies are being done and new advances are being made uh, daily on the DNA genomics and what's happening with, uh, with telomere research and what's happening with, with new drug combinations. I, it's very exciting. I think in my lifetime, and I'm not sure how long my lifetime is, candidly, but I fully expect to see, if not the cure for this terrible, terrible disease, at least something that will lead to it. Excellent. Well, thank you both so much for your time. I think it's going to make a huge difference to others to be able to hear your perspective and to know that there are many journeys in IPF and that there are practical tips that people can use to make each day a little easier. And as I said, my, my dad had IPF and as a family would have loved, we would have loved to have heard this then. So just on behalf of everyone, if I can thank you for your leadership and commitment to the IPF community and look forward to the future. Thank you. Thank you, Julie.